there are two things parents hope to give their children, roots and wings. But it's often hard to know if the decisions we're making are the right ones, especially when the world is changing so quickly. Welcome to That's a Good Question, where you'll hear expert eye-opening advice, tips, strategies to help you uncover the answers. That's a Good Question is sponsored by Good Life Family Magazine, a trusted resource for sandwich generation parents who are navigating the twists and turns of life sandwiched between their kids and their aging parents while trying to keep themselves sane in the process. Now your hosts, Cheryl Lily Pigeon and Michael Tinglin. Welcome to That's a Good Question, sponsored by Good Life Family Magazine, an important resource for sandwich generation parents who are navigating the twists and turns on the road of life. I'm Cheryl Lily Pigeon, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Tinglin. We're parents, and if you're like us, you've got a lot of questions. So we created this podcast to help uncover the answers. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now let's welcome our guest, Dr. Shauna Garza. Dr. Garza is the Clinic Director of Girls to Women and Young Men's Health and Wellness, an adolescent medicine practice in McKinney, Texas, that provides comprehensive medical and mental health care to young people ages 10 to 25. The practice also has locations in Dallas and Fort Worth. Dr. Garza received her BS in biology from Emory University and attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine. Following her medical education, she completed a family medicine residency at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth. She's a board-certified family medicine physician with over 13 years of experience working with children, teens, and young adults. Well, Dr. Garza, there is certainly a lot to cover when it comes to this age group. Our kids are navigating a lot of challenges, and the good news is parents today are more open to talk about them rather than when we were kids and our feelings were often left unheard. I think many of us think that way. One topic we think we get a lot of questions about is eating disorders. That's true, Michael. There's such a commonly held misconception that eating disorders are a lifestyle choice, but eating disorders are actually serious. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, anorexia in particular has the highest mortality rate. I guess we can start the conversation by asking you to give us some basic information about the various forms of eating disorders and why we need to be so aware of this health crisis. Well, thank you so much for having me today. And thank you for bringing this topic to everyone's awareness. Um, Eating disorders are a continuum of symptoms related to disordered thinking about food, body image, exercise, and we understand that not all patients will fit a clear, defined type of eating disorder. I would like to go over some of those that are well-defined, and anorexia nervosa is one that people hear about and have known about. That relates to restriction of food, weight loss, preoccupation with gaining weight, fear of gaining weight, and um, is defined clinically by the patient's actual weight. Um, That's something we determine, of course, in an office visit evaluating a patient. There's also a type of anorexia that many patients don't know about, and that is what we call atypical anorexia. Those are patients that have all the same disordered thoughts and behaviors around food and their body, but may actually have a normal range of weight. Those uh, patients still need help. They need help in addressing the mental health concerns related to eating disorders and also the medical complications. Um, And those diagnoses may be harder to 
uh, make because the parents aren't aware of weight loss or pediatricians are not catching the weight loss because the weight's in normal range. There's also bulimia nervosa, which is fear and shame around um, body weight and body image and is characterized by binging and purging. Um, there are also some feeding disorders that patients and parents may not have heard of that often start with pickiness, but then evolve into very restrictive intake. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is called ARFID, which is a restrictive food intake disorder that patients may have very limited variety in the types of foods they eat based on textures or colors, and that can lead to significant weight loss and malnutrition um, and can cause a lot of dysfunction for teens that are dealing with this type of disorder. There's also binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is um, also related to a lot of shame around eating and around body image and is associated with binging, which we don't necessarily define by the quantity of food, but the emotional feelings after eating food, which may be um, feeling loss of control, feeling a lot of shame for um, how they eat or what they eat. And then finally, we have a diagnosis. It's an all-encompassing diagnosis called eating disordered, not otherwise specified. And as I've seen in my own clinical practice, I'm seeing more and more patients that fit this diagnosis. They don't necessarily have all the criteria for the other types of eating disorders, but they're still very affected by the behaviors and thoughts that are disordered and how they feel about their bodies. Preoccupation with food, body weight, and shape are signals for these eating disorders. We know there are a lot of societal issues impacting the way young people, especially girls, see themselves and judge themselves. Doctor, what is the risk of dieting to teens and young people? And how does social media in particular and diet talk and body shaming lead to eating disorders? Can you elaborate on that? Yes, I'd I'd love to. That's a very good question. I worry a lot about teens that report to me dieting practices. Dieting, by definition, is restrictive. And so there are lots of rigid rules around food. There's calorie counting. There are skipping meals. There's also even eliminating full categories of food like carbs and sugar. And dieting is something that's pervasive. Teens will get this information online. Um, if they're interested to search for it, there's lots of um, places where they might find out about different diets, their friends, even within families, unfortunately. We've seen a lot of teens that learn about dieting through their siblings or even parents. And dieting, again, is restrictive and rigid, and it feeds into that preoccupation with food that can lead a teen towards disordered eating. Where um, body talk and body shaming fits in is that we have seen many teens, especially on the younger teen range, that um, hear these types of messages in their home even, or maybe through peers at school. And often there's an emphasis on hyper-focusing on certain parts of their body, um, you know, as their body grows and develops. We expect teens to grow and develop through their teen years, and they're are physical changes, and many of them will kind of hyper-focus on 
the size of their thighs or their tummy or other areas that even their families and friends talk about. And that can lead to uh, disordered thinking about their body. And then where social media fits in, I worry about the influence that social media has on teens. We know it can be a fun way for them to stay connected and in the know, but unfortunately, it's a real source of misinformation where, um, particularly on Instagram, for example, there are many influencers that um, focus on fitness, on diet, their before and after pictures that they can see. And it's emphasizing restriction and really unrealistic views of how their body should be and how, um, you know, how their body, what their, what fuel their body needs to function at its best. So I, I worry about the misinformation and the emphasis on body image that social media gives teens today. So it's that's so pervasive. And you mentioned, uh, I think you said ARFID? ARFID. So ARFID is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And it is defined, it does not have concerns with body image. Those teens do not have um, body image disturbance or disorder, but they do have a very limited intake of food related to extreme pickiness or um, just even only eating you know, a handful of different foods that leads to extreme weight loss and malnutrition. You mentioned the disorder types of thinking that can lead to eating disorders. And what are the, what should parents be looking for in terms of watching for signs of something that's really going wrong? So it's a very important point. I treat parents as experts on their own children and teens' lives because they're aware of what's going on day to day in their home. They can get a sense of um, new behaviors and thoughts related to food, exercise, and their body. And so parents are really the first step in recognizing a problem. The warning signs go back to emphasis on dieting, restriction, um, seeing their teen want to make real extreme changes to their diet, skipping meals. Um, and some of that, again, teens may think that they're just kind of starting off with what their friends are doing, but understanding that it is having an impact on their physical and mental well-being. Um, parents also may notice there being uh, lots of talk about body as far as um, feeling ashamed of their body, feeling overweight, expressing a real desire to lose weight, and also just the weight change itself may be seen by parents. Pediatricians often, and doctors like myself in adolescent medicine, often don't see teens that often in the office. Maybe we're seeing them once a year for a physical. So parents will know if there's been weight loss or weight gain, especially over a short period. What we would consider over maybe a one to three month period, a weight change is something that should be noted and should be recognized as a potential sign of disordered eating. You know, with the sense of dieting, patients that have very rigid rules and restrictions around food. And that also can translate to their um, interest in exercise. So over-exercising, compulsively exercising, 
um, and particularly using exercise as a compensation for eating. Um, so those are warning signs for parents to be aware of. And the other last thing I want to mention is just eating in secret or kind of hiding eating, eating at night, or if parents are aware of teens eating kind of larger amounts than they would expect in secret, that's also a warning sign of an eating disorder that may, again, not be as physically apparent, but that the behaviors and thoughts around food are disordered and and should be evaluated. That's so interesting. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the diagnosis and treatment of eating disorders. Please stay tuned. At Star Power, the safety of our customers and staff remain a top priority, and we'll continue to provide you the essential products and services you need to operate your home and business, home appliances, networking solutions, and more. In order to ensure your safety and provide convenience, Star Power offers private showroom to car delivery or at home delivery and in home and virtual consultations with our experts. Visit GetStarPower.com to call, chat online, or request a quote. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Shauna Garza and talking about eating disorders. Dr. Garza, even in knowing the signs, teens may be resistant um, to have their parents get them help. How are eating disorders usually diagnosed? Is it by you and other adolescent physicians like yourself, or how does that practice treat these disorders? It's a great question. So many times parents are... uh, unclear of where they should get care. Uh, Seeing their pediatrician or their general doctor is a reasonable place to start to talk about their concerns. And then, of course, in our practice in adolescent medicine, we specialize in the outpatient care of eating disorders. How our office works with eating disorders is really reflective of our comprehensive approach. We understand that eating disorders are a combination of mental health concerns and possible medical complications. And so the care really does need to be comprehensive. What outpatient care means is that a patient would be seeing a doctor, myself, or someone else specialized in eating disorders doing regular monitoring and checkups, but they also would have an outpatient team. The team would include a dietitian and therapist who specialize in eating disorders, and then possibly they might also be seeing a psychiatrist. So the diagnosis is made by one of those providers who has special focus on these conditions. And the way it's managed is through support and education um, and also through monitoring their medical and mental health. In my practice, we understand, and I have a saying, that eating disorders are not always about the food, that the disordered eating and preoccupation with food and body image often is a way that patients are coping with other emotional feelings and distress. And so we know we have to get at the root of the mental health side of what they're feeling. That may be um, screening them and treating them for depression, for anxiety, for obsessive thinking, for even self-harm that may be related to their eating disorder. And so the mental health piece is critical in helping the patient improve on that aspect so that they can then work on the kind of other other 
path of recovery. Um, working with a dietitian, which is also something we offer in our practice, helps patients understand how food is really fuel for their body and how fueled their body needs to be. And so some patients need very um, detailed guidance and even a meal plan um, with goals of them eating balanced meals and snacks. Um, other patients may need more broad guidance, but the work that dietitians and therapists do within our office or in the community is also a very important part of, of treatment for, for eating disorders. I do want to just mention at my level of care with eating disorders, one of my jobs is to make sure that patients are safe and stable and good candidates for being treated in an outpatient setting. Often eating disorders can get um, complicated with medical complications and even mental health complications. And so when patients need a higher level of care, we work very closely with different treatment centers in the area, in the state and even out of state to get patients the help they need so that they're safe and stable and uh, recovering. And so our level of care is called outpatient care, but there are also lots of providers that treat patients at higher levels of care, whether that's inpatient or another type of intensive outpatient program. That is such important information. And eating disorders clearly can be very dangerous. Anybody that's purging has a real risk of medical complications. And um, there, are, there are things we look for to screen patients for medical complications. Medical complications reversible? Is there a point where it's too late to reverse the damage? Uh, and what's the success rate for treating these young people? So we know that patients that are early to care, even within the first 30 days of this being recognized, do best. And so um, it's really important that parents and pediatricians and other providers that are seeing these patients get the care they need as soon as they can. So early is best. As far as the medical complications, we really do a head-to-toe assessment of how the eating disorder is affected um, the patient's body. Again, the concept is that food is fuel for the body to work at its best, at its best function internally, and also for your brain to work at its best. And so when patients are not well-fueled, they will have potentially parts of their body not functioning well. Um, and that relates directly to mental health. We know that patients that are underweight and malnourished will have lots of mental health symptoms. And it relates directly to them needing to be fed before their mental health symptoms will improve. And so part of their brain function, even with like concentration issues, mood issues, irritability, can be related to the eating disorder directly. Um, we also evaluate their heart. There, unfortunately, are a lot of cardiac complications with eating disorders. So I'm screening for that in my office and I'm referring them to a cardiologist pretty frequently if needed for further evaluation. We talk to patients about many gastrointestinal symptoms. Patients will have um, nausea, bloating, constipation, and some of those symptoms can be very severe. So we treat patients for those types of uh, complications. 
Um, and in women, we always ask about periods. If periods become irregular or they stop having periods, that is a sign that their reproductive system is not well-fueled and they can even go into premature ovarian failure where ovaries are not functioning. And that can have um, lasting effects on young women. Um, with that, we also screen patients for thinning bones and uh, risk for osteoporosis related to low estrogen. Um, so that is, you know, kind of the things that we talk about in our visits. Additionally, we do extensive lab work to give us information on how the, their internal systems are functioning on things we can't, you know, find an exam. And that is checking electrolytes, checking kidney function, blood counts, things, and even thyroid function that can be affected by an eating disorder. You mentioned a lot to do with young girls, uh, the young ladies. Mm -hmm. Is um, is this pervasive among males as well? So the I don't know the actual percentages, but it is prevalent in women. Um, there are young boys that deal with eating disorders. I have taken care of um, teens and college age boys with anorexia. Um, also, the condition that I refer to as ARFID is more common in males. So that is the one type of eating disorder that's more common in young males. But um, in general, it is a female-focused um, disease and concern, and uh, but our practice treats both young boys and girls of teen and young adult age. Dr. Garza, I have a question for you. Is there anything that we could do for our kids in a in when they're really young that can help them to develop the best behavior so they don't get caught into this cycle, or some types of patterns that we can give them so that they can? If it's it, what I'm trying to say is, if this is associated oftentimes with these exercise regimes, is there a way that we can develop and foster good behavior so that it doesn't go across the line and get into these eating? That's disorders? a great question. Of course, you know, parents have a real influence on your child's life at younger ages, and so most of that that I would see is through modeling, modeling um, activity as a fun outlet, modeling exercise as a healthy outlet for stress, um, and emphasizing maybe fitness and movement and exercise more for, um, building self-esteem and spending time together and as a healthy outlet and not so much on what changes it's leading to in someone's body, their physical body. The other through modeling with food is we have a saying that all foods can fit and avoiding labeling foods as good or bad foods in the family, understanding that everything in moderation can be part of a balanced diet. And so again, it's uh, eliminating the dieting talk and the body shaming talk and emphasizing balanced nutrition and having a healthy approach to exercise. So important. Well, Dr. Garza, as we wrap up today, leave us with one thing that you want any parent to know about this important topic. So we know that it can be really scary to um, find out that your teen is having these types of issues. Um, and we want patients and parents to know that they are not alone and help is there. I have a saying in my office that asking for help is the first sign of strength and that in eating disorders, getting help is the first step in recovery. And so um, finding help 
is really going to get your teen on the right path to recovery. There are um, many resources. A few that I'd like to just point out is um, some online um, websites that are uh, kind of databases for resources in the community. There's a National Eating Disorder Association website that's very thorough with parenting education, reading resources, and also um, a list of providers. And then there's a Texas Eating Disorder Association website that has, again, um, a lot of information for parents, how to approach this issue and um, support there for um, finding the right provider to help start the path to recovery. Well, thank you, Dr. Garza, for joining us today. This has been so enlightening. We really appreciate you. Thank you for inviting me today and bringing awareness to this issue. And folks, if you want to learn more about parenting advice and need resources, go to goodlifefamilymag.com for expert content. And be sure to subscribe for free to a weekly newsletter and share our content and articles that you're interested in. Thank you so much, Dr. Garza. And thank you all for joining us today. We're living, we're learning, and we are here for you. Life is good. We're here to make it better. Got a question? We've got answers. Go to goodlifefamilymag.com and click, that's a good question.